This is Studio Talk with JTEC. That is not the new theme song for this talk show, but in fact, a really cool new cinematic piece from Colin Fisher, my friend from Canada, aka the legendary sound prank, who is the second guest for this lovely new talk show and podcast of mine, titled, of course, Studio Talk with JTEC. As a very last minute decision, I decided to also stream this talk on Facebook Live video, which worked out extremely well. Uh, we had about 1,300 people listening in while we were having the talk, and then the posts got pushed out to about 600,000 people, which was pretty rad. So uh, yeah, as promised, this is a more cleaned up version with, uh, with a, a bit more production and uh, a little more sort of info and some sneak peeks uh, into new tracks that will be coming later at the very end as well. Colin and I have been good buddies for years uh, and we are often found nerding out with each other about uh, all sorts of things from audio equipment to music production to mixing and mastering, all of which we we covered in this talk today. The track you're hearing in the background right now is titled Prank Tech. It's a collaboration that he and I did for Anjuna Beats a few years back. If you want to subscribe to the show as a podcast, you can do so over at jtechmusic.com forward slash studio talk. We'll also be putting each new episode up on SoundCloud as well. I would love to hear some feedback from you guys about what you think about the new show, any suggestions for how we could make it cooler or any ideas for people we could have on the show. Uh, I'm still getting used to this whole talk show format. In this episode in particular, there were quite a lot of uh, ums and ahs and like you knows on my part for the first sort of maybe 20 minutes or so. And uh, I figured, you know, screw <laughs> editing them out. But it does get a little bit better after that. I was just a little bit sort of, um, the, whole, the whole situation was kind of quite intense because we were streaming live as well. But there's some amazing info in there. Colin's just such a great guy to talk to. I hope you guys really enjoy the show. And uh, and for anything that's been mentioned along the way, such as cool software, cool plugins, cool things that are going on with, with Colin, uh, they will be, of course, in the show notes. So be sure to check that out as well. So without further ado, please enjoy this talk for the next 60 minutes with Soundprank. I want to just jump straight into the most important thing here, Colin, and ask you um, about the coffee. What kind of coffee are you drinking? How are you preparing it? And where do you find yourself drinking it right now? Well, thanks for thanks so much for asking that, JTech, because that's frankly the most important question we need to be discussing for today. So um, I would say what I'm drinking right now is some fresh roasted, as of two days ago, uh, Kenya Kaguyu AA. And I roasted them myself. And that's about a two-day-old roast, and I made it with my AeroPress, and it's actually pretty, pretty awesome. So that's what I'm drinking right now. Cool. I'm uh, drinking a cup of ginger tea out of a cup that says "Keep Glam and Rock On," um, which I think is pretty cool. But yeah, I, um, I'm trying to actually stay off the uh, the coffee at the moment because uh, it, it keeps me up all night, and I'm currently suffering from like the worst jet lag I think I've ever had in my entire life. Uh, I was in the, U- the U.S. for two weeks. Or just so, oh, f- for uh, for three weekends, and um, basically, I've been going to bed at about five o'clock in the morning every night, and then getting up at like two p.m. or something. So it's been like totally heinous. The other day, I was I was like just starting to fall asleep at like five o'clock in the morning here in Berlin, and then yeah. suddenly, like a parade of people came down the street 
with a big sound system playing Wake Me Up Before You Go Go and just being like, woo, everybody wake up. And so uh, that just like did did nothing good for my for my jet lag. So um, yeah, so it's all over the place. Like I guess I'll get back on the right time zone at some point. I don't really care, you know. Like I'm a I'm a I'm a leisurely musician. I don't need to be up first thing in the morning. So you know, <laughs> I'm not really too fussed. There you go. You're lucky you don't have to adhere to Hollywood time zones. For me, I have to uh, work with that because they're three hours before me. So um, it's fun because I actually get like three hours of free time in the morning to work on stuff before I send it back over for like trailers and commercials and stuff. So yeah, time zones can be definitely annoying. I actually find when I, when I have, I have periods where I basically sort of like switch to a different time zone, even though I'm here in Canada and like last night, for example, I didn't get to bed until like four o'clock and I looked outside and I'm like, it's already getting light outside. I need to go to bed. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that's the crappy thing here as well is that like the sun starts coming up at four in the morning and it's just like, Oh no, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I mean, it's, you know, it's also too, it's like when you're working on stuff, I mean, it's so much fun. It's like you literally lose perception of time. I, I mean, I can be sitting here. Um, I'm currently situated in my living room cause we're moving. So, uh, but you know, if I close the door in my studio and I, and I put the shutters on the windows and, and put the blinds down, it's like, you can't, you can't tell what time it is. And, and, uh, sometimes the best ideas come when you're like about to fall asleep and you're super tired and you're just like, well, wh- fuck it. Like <laughs> I'm going to try this and see what happens. Then all of a sudden you come out across some really cool idea and then it sort of just writes itself, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've, I've been sort of finding that like I get the best work done like really late at night but then if I work on stuff late at night uh, I tend to not be able to sleep for hours after I've been working because I just have like this loop like stuck o- in my head over and over again and uh, and I just like I, I find that like w- when when you've been listening to like repetitive electronic music for a long time uh, like it's like for hours in, in a single session it like whatever you've been working on I find is, is just burnt into my brain and uh, it just keeps me like constantly in this in this state of like being like you know jazzed up and uh, so it doesn't bode well for a good night's sleep so um yeah I, I actually I, I have a lot of trouble sleeping in general just with like just being a musician and you know um, I, I honestly I really really feel like the fact that I've changed time zones so many times in my life um, I actually feel like I've I've suffered like a little bit from that like I feel like I'm never there's there's some kind of damage that that's done that I'm never going to really be able to to repair I think so um but yeah I wanted to I I'm super excited to have you on the show as the second guest because uh you are someone who has come from like a very similar background uh as I have but in in the last few years you've also taken on the role of of film and music producer and uh and and producer for game music you know um you, you've you've sort of uh, put yourself out there as uh, a composer as well as a producer as well as a mastering engineer and I've seen that you've also been doing some online courses uh, with Sonic Academy which looks really cool so I want to ask you about a bunch of that kind of stuff but firstly yeah. I just I just wanted to ask you um, when did you realize that you wanted to be involved in electronic music like what was what was that what was the moment that made you realize that this was the path you wanted to be on so I have a very uh, cool memory from when I was living in my hometown, Grimsby, which is tiny in Ontario, Canada. And I, I was always into music. Like I was very musically inclined. I think I'm probably the most musically inclined person in my family. So it's not like it's genetically, it was, you know, supposed to happen. I just happened to really like music and listening to music. And I somehow came across, I think I was on, I think the earliest, (laughs) early stage of YouTube, however, good that was um i came across dj tiesto flight 643 i think and that was like his first track that was like starting to get international like play 
And I didn't even hear it on a radio station because like we didn't even play anything like that here in Canada. I mean, it, we our version of dance music was this. We had this. Uh, there's this dance group called Love Inc. And they did like this actually really cool like classic house like organs and stuff like that. And they they actually were pretty good. I don't know why they went away, but I found this. Uh, uh flight 643 track and i just listened to it and then i found um suburban train oh and yeah yeah the sense the sense in that or like unlike anything i'd heard and i'd already like been starting to get into like um what else i, I was i listened to a lot of derude before that because my family's i have family from finland so and derude is from finland so i uh, i'd actually get sent music over from finland for my family so i had like bomb funk mcs if anyone knows who those guys are hell yeah uh, Free, free, freestyling. Do you remember, remember that um, that video clip with like the mini disc player? It was like it was like when mini discs were like a really big thing. And See, like, I had I, I thought I was cool because I was like one of the first kids who had a mini disc player that I could think of. Yeah. Right. So I thought it was really cool, but I was like the only one in Grimsby who even knew what the hell the music was, and everyone thought it was weird. But uh, yeah. So so anyways, it was like I first was starting to listen to like the European stuff because my family in Europe would send me the stuff from like Finland. So I was listening to. Um, Derude and uh, Bomb Funk MCs. And, like, you know, if you're a kid and you've grown up in a small town and you have like so little exposure to anything like that, it's, it can either, you know, it can either just be like this reaction where it's not really what you like, or it can just kind of open your mind and blow, blow your mind and blow the doors off of like what music is to you. Yep. And I think that's kind of what happened to me. I had a very strong positive reaction to it. And I'm like, this is awesome. I don't even know what I'm listening to because the instruments aren't real instruments, but I don't really care because it sounds, it sounds awesome. And yeah. then I'm like, okay, I want in. How did these guys make this? And that sort of like was, you know, me taking the blue pill, uh, <laughs> seeing, seeing how far down the rabbit hole I could go. And I'm still, as far as I know, going down the rabbit hole. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, like, like it was, it's funny you say Bump Funk MCs because that's that kind of late 90s kind of era of like kind of dance music where it was like, uh, it was like Eurodance and centered in like Europe, in Europe and the UK. And that was, um, that was this really exciting time. I mean, for me, uh, you know, I started getting into all this when I was about 16. And I remember going, uh, coming here to Germany to do like a school exchange when I was like 16 years old. And I remember just all of the tracks that were like really big around that time. Like one was like Another, Another Chance by Roger Sanchez which is like you know this like seminal kind of like house pop record and yep. um, I love stuff by like along that kind of same vein I loved stuff like you know like uh, Deepest Blue um, they did some really cool stuff and like um, even like on the Eurodance front like like Sash and like I, I dare I say it like Eiffel 65 and stuff like that. Oh yeah, yeah, they were they were pretty popular too. <laughs> you know, like um, some of it was like so cheesy, and you go back and listen to it now, and firstly, it just sounds like so so fast, and secondly, like you you don't remember it being so like simple and kind of like 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 dodgy or like 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 low quality in its in its approach. You know, it uses these like crappy little drum loops. Like I always find when I think back to those records, I imagine them like produced by like today's standards. And then you go back and listen to them and, and you just wonder how how like you know how, how hard it must have been back then to get stuff to sound cool and to sound cohesive when you're doing it all through like drum machines and recording it all onto like dat tapes and running it all through like these old school mixing desks and stuff like that, you know, before before computers were like really a thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. That was, I, I think the first guys who I really kind of looked up to con who, were, who were doing that. And I mean, bear in mind, I was like 14 or 15 at the time. So my resources to get access to the information were pretty limited at the time. But it was like Daft Punk. I remember hearing they were using the old Mackie mixer. Yep. And uh, and then it was Ferry Corsten as well, because like 
Um, I don't know if Tiesto was producing his own stuff at the time. I think he was doing it with his friend. They were doing the stuff together in the studio. But Ferry, as far as I knew, was doing it all in his own studio. God knows how he got the money to buy all that hardware. But, like, it was all being routed through MIDI in real time. And, like, it's funny because if I listen back to those records now, I can hear, like, all the bit, like, there's parts of tracks where, like, the MIDI just cacked out completely. And, like, there's, there's, <laughs> yeah. off, there's like, a three millisecond offset on some MIDI sequence. And, like, but, like, that stuff had so much personality too, because it was so imperfect, but it was all, it was like trying to be perfect, but it was imperfect at the same time. And it was like that balance. And, uh, you know, he just, he was doing really cool stuff at the time. I think he still does stuff really cool. Now I respect him greatly, but he was one of, one of the few guys who was doing that sort of thing, you know, uh, that I, that I could find like at the time. So, yeah, there's actually a Japanese word for that, which is wabi-sabi. Not to be confused with wasabi, which is the delicious horseradish. Um, but <laughs> wabi-sabi is basically this idea that like a chipped like vase or whatever is like somehow more, sometimes more beautiful than like a pristine, like perfect, like factory manufactured thing. And that that kind of balance between perfect and imperfect is actually like a really like good thing. And that's maybe something that we've lost like a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's funny that you mentioned uh, Ferry Corsten because he's actually the first DJ that I ever saw, and he's basically the one that got me into all of this in the first place. Uh, so I was like 14 years old, and we were in like my math classroom, and we just found this flyer on the floor, and it's like there's this all ages rave party happening at the university in Canberra, my hometown, and um, so we all just went along, and I was like, I was f- like basically 14 years old, and after that, I was like. I want to make trance like this is this is what I want to do so that's yeah that's how I kind of got into it all um but yeah so obviously obviously uh you have a, a kind of background in science and correct me if I'm wrong it's 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 a it's a degree in uh, I know the first word of it is nuclear what, what's the rest of it <laughs> so yeah I mean not you know completely related to music right um I have a degree in nuclear engineering nuclear engineering right uh, okay I went to school for that in Ontario and uh that was basically kind of what I'd planned to do Music was always the thing that I did on the side, and it was something I did for fun. And I, I mean, I grew up with music with regards to playing instruments. I played piano and, and percussion and drums and played in all kinds of bands and orchestras. And, you know, at the time, doing a career in music was a, a moonshot. It was completely impossible. Yeah. So, you know, I, like any sensible person, like my, my dad is an engineer. And uh, my, my family has quite a few engineers. My grandpa was an engineer. My aunts and uncles are engineers. So it's like, well, geez, what do you, what do you go to become an engineer? So that's what I did. And uh, I, I really liked it. And I think it's a great field uh, to go into. Um, but, you know, the music, the music bug for me was something I, I, I always had to be doing music no matter what. And when I, when I was even working as an engineer, I, I worked as an engineer for probably about a year and a half. Yep. And yep. I graduated and all that. I realized, you know, like during the day I'd be working and I worked at a nuclear facility and I couldn't like have any way to, to write down music that was like in my head and it would drive me absolutely nuts. Yeah. And then I'd get home at the end of the day and I had like this little studio set up at the place that I was living in uh, when I was working. And I, I mean, I could only remember bits and pieces and fragments and it was like the most frustrating thing because it was like this fragmented memory I had of some beautiful melody that I just, you know, I was like struggling for hours to try and re-piece it together to finally kind of get it back down into uh, some sort of form that sounded like what it was uh, playing, what it was playing like in my head. So, yeah. Uh, sorry, what was the what was the question? Even I forgot the uh, the question. Uh, well, I, I kind of hadn't actually like asked the question yet, so I'll, I'll sort of. I, I was I was leading onto that with um with what I, with basically you know basically you saying you have a background as an engineer. I I actually, I actually think that idea of, of being an engineer um 
actually makes up a big part of who you are as a musician now. Firstly, because you're a mix engineer and, and, and a mastering engineer. And secondly, because I feel like whenever I talk to you about music and music creation, I, I do feel like you have an innate knowledge of like the processes that are happening behind everything that's happening on the screen and uh, behind all of the effects and the flow of energy and the signals and stuff like that. I always, I've always felt like you have a good a good kind of understanding of, of how it all works under the hood. So if, see, for me, as I think, I think I said to you, when we were hanging out in New York a little while ago, I'm like a very meat and potatoes producer. I'm a very sort of like find um, a cool instrument and see like what ways I can tweak it and stuff like that. Um, whereas I feel I feel like you are able to sort of, you know, you're able to either analyze the sound and, and sort of have a good idea of exactly how it's created or you're actually really good at sort of um, creating your own sounds and effects as well. I remember doing a... Um, uh, a seminar at Pyramind in San Francisco, and I was I was telling everybody how I'd stolen this reverb from you. But it's it's, um, it's it's like the Colin reverb preset, and it's something you used in uh, in one of our tracks. And it was basically just this cool Ableton rack, which was just running like it was like a bit crushy kind of extremely compressy, super epically long reverb that was doing all this cool like modulation and stuff. And um, yeah, and so you know, I feel like. I feel like when people come to you, uh, you know, especially for, for producing that, like their stuff and making their stuff sound good, I think um, because you are such the, you're such the, the kind of like analytical and kind of chilled uh, kind of approach to it, and I, I think um, you know you're the kind of person who's going to approach this kind of stuff uh, with very little ego, which I think is one of the most important things, especially for mastering. So um, I saw that you've started your own mastering service now called Cartesian Mastering. Is that correct? Yes. Do you want to yeah. tell us a little bit about that, how it got started, and uh, and and what you've been working on lately? Sure. Uh, well, basically, yeah. I mean, I've always kind of been an, I've always been fascinated with like the the science of things, and I think that music's a beautiful form of expression of science because it takes the the abstraction of chaos and sort of molds it into like a palpable, almost tangible form, if you will. And, and it's it's cool because it's science. But it also taps into some very primal emotion that we have in all of us as humans and animals. And I think that's really, really cool. It's really deep. It gets really meta for me because, you know, at the same time, you can take a look at a waveform and it's like you can measure it and you can say this is a sine wave. It has three dBs of, of gain. And then all of a sudden you play it in a song and then you get this massive emotional response, which you cannot measure. Yeah. So it's almost like you've got the scientific thing that you can look at and you can hear it. But then it's like the results. And the, the, the experience is something you cannot measure. And I think there's something really fascinating there um, that I'm I just deeply, deeply interested in learning more about. So I feel like the more I can learn about the technical aspects of production, the more I'm able to tap into what is that, the essence of the emotional thing that makes music so impactful to people. Yeah. And I think... Um, I've had this conversation with a lot of producers too. It's it, it's it's part of the the psychology of music as well. You know how we how we think and the way we process and the way we interpret the world around us. You know, in terms of as you said, energy flows and states and things like that. It's it's really important to understand that. And I think the more you understand the psychology of uh, of who we are as humans and the experience of being on this, you know, in this in this uh, thing we call life, the better you're able to make music. So. I think that everything kind of ties into its uh, into uh, the music in terms of the technical. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've always been more a technical guy. I, I, I just love that stuff. I love to read manuals on on hardware and the plugins and stuff like that. Um, and so basically, you know, it sort of made sense to go into doing mixing and mastering because 
uh, I would get asked, you know, and people say, well, how, how did you do that? Or, or why did you decide to use these settings on this compressor? Or, you know, as you said, like, like how the heck did you come up with this bit crushy reverb thing? And honestly, like most of it just comes from a place of experimentation. It's like, well, I didn't know how to, what to, to do in the first place. So I sort of just dragged and, you know, at the time I, I could only afford plugins. So it's like, well, I take a plugin and I put it in and then I see what it does. And then, Oh, this is a delay. I'll put that on after, you know, and then you sort of build up this long chain and then you sit back and you look at it and you're like, wow, that actually sounds really cool. And, uh, you know, it's sort of just, it, it'll do things before, before your eyes that, you know, you're not really having much in, in the way of controlling. Like, as you said, that reverb thing, I think I remember it, it was like this modulated thing and it had like auto filter on it from Ableton and it was like LFOs and, and flanging and phasing. So it was like sending it all over the place in the stereo field. And it sort of would just like spit out these little, like little things of like brilliance where it's like this, it would just suddenly come in and out of phase really, really quickly. And it would like pass from right to left really quickly. And then you would just be like, what the hell was that? Yeah. But it, was, it sounded really cool. And it was like, not, I couldn't actually do that myself. I would only be able to do that by automating all these plugins to do it for me. So, um, you know, that's just what I really like to, to learn about and do. So the mastering sort of made sense. So, yeah, so the, the, the newest mastering venture is called Cartesian Mastering. And basically, it's sort of like, it's like the legitimate, the legitimate form of what I've been doing for a long time, which is mixing and mastering. I've been doing it for quite a while, but always via word of mouth. So um, it just sort of made sense to, to compartmentalize that and make it its own entity. And Cartesian just made sense because it was, it was one of the few names that wasn't uh, being used by anyone else, um, you know, like master to own or, you know, like master disc or any of the cool catchy techie names. That Masterpiece. Really cool. Yeah, exactly. You know, epic mastering. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> yeah. I basically, it, it, it's sort of a shameless thing, but you, when you, when you try and make a brand or anything like that, you actually kind of want to make sure that no one else is using it because a Google search can reveal a great many interesting details. And if you happen to have, you know, your company, uh, you know, with the same name as a company that manufactures, say like dental dental products it's sort of confusing for people who are trying to like latch onto you and learn about you so cartesian was like a cool name that i thought would be interesting and you know cartesian is like it, it the word of the, the form of the word is sort of like to measure things and be accurate and thing like that so you know I'm, I, I thought that was a cool cool name for it and uh so what i've been up to lately uh well i i just finished mastering a, a playstation 4 uh indie game uh which i can't say because it's not yet released um which is the big one that I did recently. And then I do a lot of mixing and mastering for, 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 you know, producers and, and people who come to me via word of mouth still. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much the exact same thing I've been doing. Um, just, you know, with a name on it. So, um, yeah, I did the latest PS4 game. And then basically the last month I was sort of slammed with doing sound design and I was working on, uh, trailers. I, I just did the recent trailer for the new quake champions game. I was doing music for that. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, I, I try and chunk out months of, of the year to, focus on things but then the job like that sort of falls on my plate and i have to you know sort of drop everything and, and do that so um yeah i mean that's basically it it's still small and i'm i'm i'm, I'm really hoping it's to sort of grow it organically i don't i don't really want to plaster everyone uh yourself included with facebook ads you know use my service because we're awesome i don't want to do that so yeah i mean I, I do a little bit of that but um just usually on my podcast and stuff like that and uh you know like yeah once again i think word of mouth has been like for, for the like post-production stuff that i've been doing in here in this uh in this lovely new studio that i have uh it's all been kind of it's it's mostly been people who i know through like the rave scene you know i do like the yeah. i do like the occasional kind of poppy master or like a band or something like that but for most most people like, mostly it's people who are doing basically trying to 
do exactly the same that I was that I was doing sort of you know like over the last like 10 years and uh, trying to find their way out of the woods with their mixes basically um, and so yeah you know and uh, like you were saying about the psychology of it I really feel like uh, I feel like people's tracks and people's mixes as well are like a reflection of like who they are and, and where they're at with their kind of personal development and their kind of spiritual development and stuff like that so in a way um, it's kind of almost about sort of looking into this person's soul and and, and seeing seeing what they've done here and seeing what they're trying to say and uh, perhaps seeing their own message like a, more clearly than they can see it themselves because they're so close to it and they're so attached to it um, and so that's why I think it's, it's the kind of thing that needs a really level-headed res- like approach and you need to you need to have a good procedure for it. You need to have a lot of checklists. You need to have a lot of ways to ensure that it actually uh, works properly. Um, so I wanted to ask you, uh, since you've sort of moved from Progressive House uh, into more sort of studio production for film and games and stuff, and by the way, like, the fact that you've just done a trailer for, for Quake, like, the Quake, is amazing. Like, <laughs> that's just... so That's such a cool thing to, to have on your resume, that you have you have contributed to the Quake universe with, with your talents. Like, that's just... I think that's so cool. Um, so, like, say, say you're doing, like... Actually, maybe the Quake trailer is a good example. Like, what, what are the kind of differences in the way that you approach uh, the construction of, of a piece of music for something like that, as well as the mixing and mastering for something like that, as opposed to, say, like, a club track? Um, well, it's a completely different way to, like, do, do music because it's as much sound design as it is music. So, um, you know, with that that format it's it's i sort of had to like completely disengage from anything i think about or know with dance music regarding like arrangements um the cool the cool part is is that a lot of like a lot of the principles with like how you apply to you know a mix down for example in terms of getting cleanliness and clarity and headroom and making sure you've got dynamics that that all still carries over so there's a lot of crossover in terms of that but you know, you, when you're dealing with this trailer stuff, it's like you have to send it to someone who's going to be mixing it in 7.1 surround. You have to really take into account stereo placement of things and phasing, which was a big, um, you know, it's a big challenge because it's like I'm so used to working in stereo and I don't I don't predominantly work in 5.1 or 7.1 yet, um, maybe down the road. The, you know, you have to take into account the, the placement of things because if I'm say, if say if uh, I have stuff that's really, really wide, it's actually going to be sent to the back of the 7.1 system. Yeah, yeah, yeah for mixing. Sure. So, you know, you've got to be mindful of that. Um, I think, I think in general with the trailer stuff, it's, it's basically like make it as epic as possible, but still make it super, super punchy. Whereas with dance music these days, it's like, you know, um, try and get it really, really loud, but it's okay to not have it maybe be as crisp and clear on some of this, like some of the EDM, I find it's like, it's, it's almost fatiguing to listen to, which is also a difference. Like, because, uh, you know the the trailer music we have to we have to it's mixed to be played on the lowest common denominator which is basically like an iPhone yeah. speaker and it also needs to sound good on massive PAs like when it was played at E3 like on massive yeah. sound systems so it's basically got to be able to sound good on any system whereas I feel with dance music dance music it's still these days I mean because it's becoming such a popular thing you do sort of abide by those rules, but with dance music, because you've, it's formatted for also a club, on like, say, a club mix, you can get away with emphasizing the highs and the lows a bit more, right? You can push a little bit more low end around 50 hertz. You can push a little bit of 10K and 2K and get a little more, you know, a little more push in that area so that it sounds a little more uh, present when you're playing it in a club. Um, so that's a, that's a difference for sure. Um, 
for me, it's it's also about telling a story versus like an idea. I think with dance music, it's almost like you can just sort of play six minutes or seven minutes of sort of like a vibe or a feeling of like emotion. And and with trailer music, the way I look at it is I feel like it's almost my duty. I'm duty bound to try and tell a story. You know, like, for example, with Quake, you know, it's like, what is this? It's something about battle. It's about fighting. It's visceral. It's primal. It's aggression. Um, you know, and there's all kinds of emotions that accompany that. So, you know, we don't, I mean, I, I don't really know if there's a genre of dance music that deals with, like, being, like, you know, aggressive and angry, unless it's, like, hardcore, but I don't make hardcore. So, um, that's basically it. The mixing is, is a little different. I didn't actually mix the trailer. Um, a good a very good uh, mentor of mine who's a huge, who's one of the top guys in Hollywood. He mixed it, but you know, he taught me a great deal on this trailer as well. And, and I would say immediately too, is like, you definitely don't want as much high end um, on the trailer stuff because it's going to be, it's going to be played on so many formats. And so, you know, if I played him some of my dance stuff, he actually, he found it almost ear splitting and like a lot of the pop stuff, he finds it so aggressive in the high end, which I found really interesting because of the fact that, you know, for film and trailers and stuff like that, it's it's really just about getting that power and emotion across, and you don't need to necessarily use um, a lot of high end elements to do that. So that's you know, it's all it's more about getting that mid range punch and making sure things have a lot of impact and they sound really big. And um, you know, I'd send him initial drafts of things, and it was like, yeah, no, it doesn't sound big enough. I'm like, what? It doesn't sound big enough? Like it's mastered to like minus six dB RMS, man. And he's like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. And you know, it's about making the actual piece of music sound big and impactful, regardless of the level that it's played back and the system that it's played back at. So, and I think that's that's a really cool thing because for me, it was like, wow, this is like a whole new ball game. It's like a, a whole new challenge. And and uh, every time I do a different trailer project, it's like a, a whole new experience and a whole new set of paradigms and a whole new set of constraints that I've got to abide by. So that's a really cool thing because. For me, dance music, it's like, okay, we get, we have a 4-4 kick. What are we going to do BPM-wise? Well, it can really only be between like 121 and 130. And, uh, you know, then you have your synths, your bass, your hi-hats, claps, effects, maybe a vocal, and then like your fills and call it a day, but make it cool and interesting at the same time. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think one's better than the other, and I think both are really cool and fun to do, which is why I still love to do dance music. But, you know, it's just a different set of rules that you abide by, and I think it's fun to sort of play around with that. Well, it's funny you say about like the mid-range, like whenever I put on like a movie trailer here in the studio, because sometimes I just sit in here uh, with like Vimeo or YouTube or something and just like turn all the lights off and just crank it in here because it's like such a good place to like watch movies and things like that. And uh, <laughs> I always find that like the movie trailers, it's like it's like there's so much happening around like 100 to like 500 hertz, you know, like that kind of like lower mid-range is like is like it's like gravitational center. Right. And um, there might be some extreme sub bass happening with like one or two elements but otherwise everything is like super super mid-rangey and i also noticed that with kind of like quite big sort of poppy tracks it's like you know um i always have a pretty trebly kind of frequency spectrum i always I, I always have a lot of like really like crispy kind of stuff going on in like high high hats and stuff like that and a lot of dance music does um but i also find like uh it's it's almost like that doesn't come through on like an iPhone or something, you know. It's like the iPhone just like because the iPhone is like a it's it's, it's a good ref, like I, I always listen to stuff on like an iPhone. I listen to stuff on like MacBook speakers. It's amazing how much stuff I finish in here, get it sounding good on these two pairs of speakers, get it sounding good on headphones, and get it sounding good on my MacBook speakers, and then I take it to the iPhone speakers, and everything sounds like too compressed, you know. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So it, it is actually kind of interesting how people, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of being squeezed into this little like into this little sound space, this uh, upon you know upon which we can sort of like give our musical message. And it's it's up to it's up to the individual producer, I think, to decide uh, where on that spectrum they want to sit. And uh, another really really big thing is just. Um, how many things you have happening in the track at the same time because if you're listening to a track you know in a, in a studio on some nice like studio monitors for example you have such a big sound space that is sort of stretched across the whole room and you can place things all in all these different little, little places in the sound space um, but you generally find like the EDM tracks that, that do the best uh, nowadays are the ones that have like a piano and a vocal and like a really simple drum loop or you know something like that like something where there's only like three things happening in the track and so all three of those things can just be like really big and uh and stick out so that's you know that's always interesting to me you know like uh my music has, has historically always been about having like probably a few too many things happening at the same time and uh you know and trying to make those all work and i would i would say that you know i think some of some of your tracks that i've liked the most have 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 been really intricate like that as well um so yeah uh I was going to ask you about um, the setup that you're using at the moment. Um, I noticed, uh, I noticed uh, on Facebook that you've actually just got added some mix cubes to your setup, and I'm really, I'm really keen to know uh, what systems you're using at the moment and what you're finding is helping you get your mixes and masters to translate to to basically everything else that's out there. Yeah. So. Um I mean, actually, I find that some of the best sets of references are like the MacBook speakers because they, for whatever reason, they're, they're like shrunken down NS10s, like the old Yamaha NS10s. They're like miniature, miniaturized versions of that. So they're really kind of honest and they don't compress too much. It, it, I mean, they sound like absolute garbage, but the thing is they uh, they really show, you know, parts of the track that like what's going to cut the most through on like a radio station is what sort of the the, uh, the iPhone or the, sorry the MacBook speakers uh, represent so they they're gonna they were gonna reproduce all the frequencies that really really cut through in terms of like the melody parts as you said like I'd say around five hundred to you know two K that's sort of like where all the melody stuff happens and then above two K you just get like you know you've got like the third and fourth and fifth order harmonics and things up up like where you get like your your distortions and and things that give a little more high end detail and resolution. So yeah, the MacBook speakers I think are still really really good, but yeah, I just picked up a pair of mix cubes, the Avantones, um, as a as a way to sort of like bridge the gap between listening to more like hi-fi uh, speakers um, and then you know the more lower end stuff. So the, the 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 whole point of the mix cubes is basically to be uh, like a representation of what it's going to sound like on like on any any kind of system that someone's going to have like in their car or a home stereo or a set of tv speakers things like that um they don't sound good that's for sure they are not meant to sound good they're meant to be honest representations of what your mix sounds like on a bare, on a bad system and the thing is what's interesting is the mix cubes they've, they've literally done so much design and research to make sure they've nailed that sound down so that it saves you a lot of time yeah and uh and uh, I just finished a remix, uh, the draft of a remix, and I'm like, it's amazing because I did it on them, and I I, I referenced on I have a set of uh, Denadio acoustics, uh, which are great because they're hi-fi, um, they're a little hyped in the lows and the highs, um, but they're not too fatiguing to listen to. Which uh, which which ones have you got? Um, they're just little BM5A Mark IIs. I think I've had them for years, and I just I like this. I know the sound really well. Um, 
I mean, I, I've worked on all kinds of different systems like uh, K&H and ATCs and PMCs at studios that I've worked at. Um, and I love, I love Focals as well. Um, ATCs are a great brand. Um, the studio that I was working at doing some sound editing for video games uh, downtown, they've got some on an SSL console, and uh, it's a great, they're, they're great speakers as well. Um, yeah. But for the room that I'm in and the room that I'm going to be going in, it doesn't make sense to have something that big. So, uh, you know, the, the Bayer, the, the, sorry, the, uh, the Donati acoustics are, they're sort of like a standard hi-fi type speaker, which is yeah. cool to use to get like an overall feel for the low end. They're not too, they're not too big because if, if you're in a small room, they're not going to maybe portray the low end, honestly. And, uh, and then the mix cubes sort of like bridge the gap between that and say like MacBook speakers, but they give a really good representation of the overall like meat and potatoes of the track, which I like. Um, and I, and I just, I found doing this mix on them. It really saved me a lot of time just in terms of like checking things and making sure the balance of elements was there and dynamics were there. So, um, yeah, I, I really like them. Um, I mean, I haven't had them long enough to really know them intimately, but I can say already it was a big improvement. So yeah. that's the, so I use, I'm using those right now. And then I also have headphones. Like I have a smorgasbord of headphones that I use. Um, I'm currently using Sennheiser HD six fifties. Um, I'm currently, uh, probably in the next month or two going to be up, upgrading those to some Odyssey LCD, XCs, the oh my God. yeah, they're amazing. Um, yeah, so uh, uh, Pavo from Above and Beyond was uh, was was was. I, I'm not sure if it's the exact ones, but he's got some of these. They're the massive ones. It's like you, yep. you 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 couldn't like you couldn't like be on the subway with them. Put it that way. And when you when you when you put them on, like it, the whole world just goes silent. Like it really is like you're putting on a pair of uh, like you're putting on a pair of noise canceling headphones or something. And um, yeah, like. The sound on the sound quality on them is just insane. Like I, I, I'm not sure what people's experiences like uh, monitoring with them. I think Submotion Orchestra um, did their album on like some Adam monitors and then those those headphones. Um, yeah. So uh, I actually I use the uh, like I use the Dynaudio. I've got the um, these in the studio here. We've got like the BM5A Mark One, which I think is actually quite a different speaker from the Mark II. Um, but if I was going to get a new pair of monitors, like just a basic kind of setup, I would probably switch to like the new ones. Um, but I, what I did find, because I've got them running side by side with Adams, and uh, I find that like the Dynaudio, like um, if I do the initial rough mix on them, everything already sticks out really nicely on laptop speakers and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, it, they seem to be like a really good. Uh, speaker for like setting the stage like setting the sound stage you know i find like starting on them and then maybe doing some more detail work in headphones seems to yield pretty good results you know the atoms uh i, I really find they have like a like and I, I would sort of say this to anyone who's doing like dance music with with atom speakers is that uh they have a bit of a blind spot in terms of like the clubby like thumpiness of of a track and they're good for like mixing vocals and for and, you know they've got this fantastic kind of sound if you put on if you put on like you know something that's like you know, like a band like mixed at Abbey Road or something like that, then the Adams just sounds so nice to listen to, but they do actually have a few blinds, like pretty serious blind spots when it comes to uh, to mixing. So the Dino, yeah, Dino Audio, although they took a bit of getting used to, they have definitely become sort of like the bread and butter for me as well, um, just in terms of just getting things to sound right. So, um, and uh, I, know you, I know you've been doing a bit of uh, research lately on like audio interfaces and, um, you know, and you, you've, you've been nerding out quite a bit on like DA converters and stuff like that. How, how important do you think that part of the chain is to your overall sound and like the results that you're going to get? 
Um, so with regards to audio interfaces, it really depends on your needs. I think that that's the best way to dictate what your needs are in terms of like what you should budget and what type of interface you're going to want. So for me, because I do the mixing and mastering, um, but I also have some hardware stuff here that I record like analog synths and, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to be probably expanding with some preamps and maybe like a microphone and things like that. I want I want the flexibility to add I/O options as I go, but in a scalable way where I can customize bits and pieces and not have just one interface that's got all you know preamps that I can't really change or it's got um, configurations that I that aren't very flexible. So yeah, I mean, I I just actually upgraded converters. I got the Antelope Audio Pure Two, which is actually a mastering converter and clock. Um, and it's, 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 firstly, it's great. I mean, it's really amazing the, the sound of it is very clear the stereo and the stereo imaging and the spatiality of it is, is probably the best that I've ever heard on a, on a pair of converters. I, I, I've been using RME interfaces probably now for like the last five years and they're, they're honestly like still the best, uh, they're the best offerings for, for overall stability of drivers and options in terms of connections and IO. Um, they're, they're fantastic. And I mean, as you know, like I, I have army baby faces. I've got two for, for gigs and mobile work because they're just, they're, they're foolproof. They're, they're built like tanks. They never fail. They sound amazing. Um, so there's really nothing to not like about them. They're just really solid little, little boxes. And then they've got their bigger offerings, uh, you know, like the UCX and the, the rack mount, uh, UFX. Um, and then they just came out the new 802. And I was actually considering the UFX or the 802 because of the connections and the converters on them. But I found because I'm sort of getting more into this weird world of mastering where it's very boutique and kind of like super high endy stuff that no one really knows much about. Um, very few people like can tell you what the converters do. Um, I, I basically just went and listened. So uh, I, I was I was actually deciding between a Lynx Hilo and the uh, the Antelope Pier Two, but the Pier Two just won because for me it was the imaging and the spatial the spatial sense. Like I I, I was I, I had I brought the unit home and they said like you know check it for a week and if you don't like it you can bring it back and get the links. And I said okay. And and I got home and uh, I had to tell my fiance you know to like turn the TV off and and uh, she wasn't very happy. But uh, I basically plugged it in and it was really really easy to set up plug my uh my sennheisers in and and uh the the headphone amp on this thing too is unreal it has its own dedicated dac just for the headphone outs um and and i plugged it in i just started listening to movie soundtracks you know i was listening to interstellar i was listening to inception um all my favorite scores harry gregson williams hans zimmer thomas newman you name it and i couldn't believe just how much of an improvement there was to the the resolution in terms of the stereo width i was hearing i was hearing things on the fringes of the left and right that i just couldn't hear on the rmas and it was like I'm, i was hearing it like a performance versus just hearing it like a piece of music yeah and i know i know that sounds terribly cliche because that's what you hear on like the, the commercials for audio interfaces but the jump in quality for me was was really remarkable and uh that's I think that's the biggest difference between like the low end and high end converters is you're just the detail that's captured and reproduced is so much greater. And there's like uh, there's a difference in power I think uh, between say when I've got the headphones plugged in here to like the Roland interface that I got in here, and then when I'm at home pl- just plugged directly into my MacBook. You know, there's like a difference in like power of the sound that's actually sort of coming through the headphones. So it's interesting how that how the actual audio source is 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 just as important as as what you're listening to. You know, and um, and so that's that's a really important thing is to sort of be analyzing and assessing every single part of the chain uh, from your brain to 
the listeners is wherever they are you know like from from the idea from the from the actual s- s- quality of the sound that you're using whether it be like an instrument like the the quality of like the the recording environment that you have the way the signal's been coming in the way that it's being processed the way that you know like it it's all just so important and there are there are so many things that can go wrong along the way and so there is this kind of quest for like audio purity where you're just trying to get the most real like the the most true capture the most true image of this uh, of this sound or, or, to, or to create the most uh, authentic and, and pure kind of sound that you can, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, yep. So one of, the, one of the canned questions that I that I sent to you before we started this, um, after, after the last episode, I decided to actually give some the, 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 the really like tough questions that, that require some thinking about it. I'm sending them a little, little like more in advance because, you know, sometimes it's a bit when you're like on live on the air and somebody asks you like a really tough question, it's like it can be hard to think about it. But um what is what is uh, what is one change people can make to instantly improve the quality of their tracks? One change. Oh, okay. This is easy because I harp on this a lot with my. Um, I do private teaching with uh, some students for production and in my lessons as well that I've done with uh, Lynda.com and Sonic Academy. And I I always I always harp on about this and that is gain staging. Please, ladies and gentlemen, mind your gain staging. Like when you're when you're using plugins that are like analog as they say quote unquote analog modeled that basically means they're designed to add like saturation or accentuate or multiply harmonics literally just reducing the gain by 6db going into your plugins like like a like a vintage warmer 2 or fab filter saturn or uh, decapitator or anything like that it's unreal how much more clear of a signal you get coming out and the reason is because most of these most of these um analog design plugins they're designed to work at like zero db analog which is actually in digital about minus 18 db so and most people like they don't know that so uh because you know who has act- nobody's born and raised on like a console these days so if you're running such a hot signal in the 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 plugin actually sort of it sort of breaks i guess the algorithm kind of breaks it and it doesn't respond in maybe the best possible way um some plugins you can calibrate that and some of them they're designed to take that into consideration um but i find that a lot of like mixes that i'm sent there's this weird thing with plugins where if you drive too much signal into them and they're not really they're not built like they have a they have a limit for which they sound good and then beyond that they sort of just break up yep and uh, with plugins i find there's super super low frequency rumble that's added like around 10 to 20 hertz and 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 the thing is most guys on on their setup you know they don't they don't they don't pick it up they don't hear that or they just don't know to look for it and i can hear it and it's super super low rumble i mean i can barely make up to 10 hertz on my sennheisers but it's there and for whatever reason that's something i don't get on hardware where it's like with hardware it's almost like the natural filtering of the analog circuitry cuts out that super low end like it's almost like a dc offset thing where it's super super low end um the residual whatever's residual from the processing of the plugin with the software vsts that that happens so i find that by sort of playing around with the gain staging much like you would with analog hardware uh it really helps to clean up your mix and it's amazing how much resolution fidelity you get back just by adjusting your levels and i'm i'm guilty of that too because you know when you're working on a project and you're inspired and you know you have uh you know 60 80 100 tracks in your project gain staging is probably the last thing on your mind when you're in the zone and and you're in that flow state and you're writing music and it's just happening so you know you'll get to the end points of your of your mix down process and all of a sudden it's like well 
I'm, you know, it sounds good, but it's almost muddy. And then it's like, well, now you have to, you know, you begin the process of backtracking. Well, where did I go wrong and what happened? And so the gain staging for me has always been a big part of it. As soon as I sort of incorporated that, it made a big difference. Um, so that's, that's the easiest thing I can tell people is gain staging is, is, um, you know, read, read the manuals. If, if certain plugins are designed to behave a lot like an analog piece of hardware, treat them as such. Um, because I find that it makes the track a lot easier to mix when you, when you respect the plugins for what they're designed for. Um, and other times it's fun as hell to break them and like push signal way too hot into a plugin just to see what happens. And then, but make sure you filter out all the bad stuff afterwards. And that's this kind of controlled clipping thing that, that, you know, and that, that's something that's never really, I've never really found like the sweet spot with that, you know, it's like, I always, cause I always found, I always, I'm always trying to go for like a clean sound. And I feel like with that kind of like, by like running so much of a signal through like a, a plugin and essentially breaking it, it's like, you might have a sound that like sticks out a lot and like, yeah, like just, you know, is, is, is very sort of in your face, but at the same time, I think you do lose like a lot of sound quality as well. So, you know, um, but that's really good advice, and I, I certainly am guilty of, of like just like running into the red with like whatever I'm working on because I'm just so excited, and I always I always kind of do it with my heart first and then my head later. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. like and and the thing is like when I actually write my initial demos and like do like the rough demo, which is just the musical idea. Like there's so much about it that's, that's incorrect. You know, like my actual when I'm actually writing music, like I don't mind like throwing a bunch of stuff or processing in there that that isn't gonna be in the in the final cut or like doing some like really extreme stuff that you know i'm later going to come back to after like a good night's sleep with fresh ears and go and like a level head and just go like okay like that that needs to be way more like behaved than it is or or, you know um but yeah uh so i i had um yeah you you were sort of talking about these like these plugins that you're using and i I wanted to actually sort of ask you uh, i know you're uh you're a big fan of the uad stuff and uh uh, when it comes to mixing and mastering, as as well as uh, as as sort of music production, like what what are your sort of go to uh, synths and plugins at the moment? Um, well, yeah, the UAD stuff's awesome. Um, I guess I kind of have to give a shameless plug because I'm endorsed by them. So hey, shout out to UAD, they're awesome. By um, UAD, everyone. <laughs> by UAD. <laughs> not not don't don't tell them I sent you. Um, but yeah, the the UAD stuff is really good because it's it's. It's analog modeled plugins done really, really well, and it doesn't take a hit on your CPU. Um, if, if, if anything, it's marginal um, just to run the actual software uh, for the UAD architecture, but it's very, very small. Um, yeah, I really like the UAD stuff. It's, it's, it does the gentler side of the analog distortion saturation thing, which I feel I think is a lot of what people miss for these analog designed uh, plugins, is that most of the beauty and the magic of this analog stuff happens actually in, you know, in the more gentle forms than say like really, really heavy distortion or really heavy, like hard digital clipping, which has sort of become the norm these days. Yeah. I think if you, if you have the time and the patience and, you know, uh, a little bit of ingenuity to work and play around with these plugins, you'll find that there's a huge swath of, of sonic capability with a plugin like the, the, the Neve uh 1073 preamp that they put out or uh you know even the ssl uh, compressor that they made which i which i still use and i've been using for years um or you know the 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 manly massive massive passive uh eq which is i i think still probably one of the best eq plugins of all time and the reason why is because i think as you as you get more trained ears you start to hear the, the harmonics that they add are really really pleasing and it's like they add this gentle it's almost like they they're able to massage the mix and add fullness in ways that don't do not sound brittle and harsh 
um, yeah. and the harmonics that they do add, they're, 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 they're structured in such a way that it actually accentuates the music and makes the music more musical versus, you know, the digital distortion types where you're getting these really, really jagged uh, second with third order, order harmonics, which basically is like a really crunchy diode distortion, which is great if you're using like a guitar pedal, but maybe not on an entire mix. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, um, that's that's the thing that I like about them. Um, what else? I, I use a lot of stuff from Plugin Alliance. I do a lot of beta testing for them for their new plugins, and they're really awesome people as well. I really like them. They're a great team of people. Um, uh, and and uh, basically, they're they're sort of doing a, their own version of analog stuff done well. They work a lot with like Brainworks and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Brainworks guys uh, are awesome because they 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 will they they will buy the hardware and then they will literally rip it apart and analyze all the circuitry and then they will model it um, meticulously and then they build it back up. So I really like that stuff. Um, I use a lot of Isotope as well because of its it's uh, it's really clinical in the way that you can you can use the Isotope stuff. They're metering like uh, what is it? I want to say oh, I can't remember what it's. A, their their spectrum analyzer is really good as well. But I use a lot of their stuff. The maximizer is still one of my go tos. Um, so that's basically it. Uh, and it's just it's just really really knowing the stuff well. It's knowing the the, the plugins intimately well, and you know the limits. Um, I, I still feel strongly that a lot of these uh, software emulations of hardware, they they, they kind of get like ninety five percent of the hardware, and then and then you sort of reach the limits or the capabilities of the plugin, and yeah. and then you you know it's not necessarily worse, it's just a different response um, from the hardware itself. And the biggest thing I could I can speak to is you know like so, like Clipper plugins or like distortion plugins or like Soft Clipper like Sausage Fattener or things like that, the output stage of those, they have like this really, really hard clipper on the end so that nothing goes over zero. And, uh, you know, I, I, clipping is great. Um, you know, and there's a whole subject I could talk about for hours. I'm sure you could could as well. But the biggest thing for me was like some of these clippers, they, they have a limit. Like you can't really push them more than 2 dB before they sort of break up. And then when I got these new Pure 2 uh, clipper, the, the converter with the clipping, um, conversion in them sorry the the antelope pure 2 uh i was doing tests the other day just to see like what what happens and they're designed they're designed you know they're they're mastering converters so they're designed to be pushed a little bit and they they you can you can do that they're designed for that so i, I was pushing signal into them i had a pre-master of a track that i was working on and i pushed it into the into the converters and i was recording it back in and then i looked at the waveform and it was the weirdest thing because the analog clipping was so different still to like the best analog design soft clipping out of like out of like the uh you know like like isotope maximizer or the uad fatso senior like looking at the response it was so weird and so like the the what w- like with the with the antelope converters where the tops of the peaks had been shaved it was like round and like little sine waves on the top whereas with the digital clipper it was still like ruler flat and so like even even at like and i was pushing i was pushing a shitload of, of signal through these converters just to exaggerate and see like how how much signal they could take and they, they just they just never broke up they never broke apart yep and so the tops of these peaks the shelving was was little sine waves and i thought that was so cool because it was just the voltage response of the converters it was still uh coping with the signal even though it was like something like 10 db over and and it didn't sound harsh. It sounded distorted to hell, but it was warm and it was punchy. And the cool thing is, is with these converters, they 
they they clip across the entire spectrum they don't focus on any parts of it like because certain soft clippers they have like aliasing filters and so they'll have to you know they have to have like a low pass filter to roll off some of the aliasing frequencies that are introduced and things like that so you know suddenly your response is like someone put a little bit of like a low pass filter on the mix at say 15 or 16k with these antelope converters everything was everything was pushed and clipped but very musically and very warmly and it was like the the, the image and the, the width was just enhanced on everything so i mean it, it was just from doing that one process it was really really cool so um you know i still think software this is the kind of stuff that i could just listen to you talk about all day like this, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and, and and this is this is what i mean about you know you you like you really are sort of so zoomed in on 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 what's what's happening with the signal and how it's and how it's being processed and, and stuff like that which i which i really admire and i, I think a, a lot of the people who listen to your music i think that's i think that's that's what you bring to the table i think with with your overall kind of sound um I, I had I had one more question for you in terms of uh, just what you were saying about um, about these uh, the courses that you're doing on the Sonic Academy. So you you have a yep. course available through uh, Sonic Academy at the moment called How to Mix an EDM Wall of Sound. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so you know the biggest one of the biggest questions, and I'm sure you're asked this a lot too, is you know how do I get my stuff sounding com- like competitive, and how do I get that commercial sound and the loudness. Um, that released tracks on labels such as, you know, our beloved engine of beats have. So this course was basically designed to address a lot of those issues. And, and in a way that was easy for people to pick up, um, you know, who maybe didn't have as much production experience or, you know, there's a lot of that in there for people who maybe have more experience, but want a, a unique perspective on things, which I think is, is great because I think, um, for me, you know, and as you said, with regards to ego, I think ego should never play into this. And I think once a student, always a student. Um, I'm always trying to learn new stuff. So if there's if there's someone who's doing something really cool and exciting that I'm, you know, that I'm interested in, uh, you know, I would love to learn about it and learn more about what it is that person does to whatever they're doing to maybe apply to my, my own projects. So yeah. the, the, po- the purpose of the course was basically to... Uh, you know, condense a lot of like what I do um, and what I've learned over the years into, um, you know, a few hours of just me chatting on a, on a track that I've made. Um, you know, here's what I did here. Here's how I've mixed these things. This is the way I've leveled the drums. And maybe here's a little bit about the compression. And, uh, you know, I talk a lot about gain staging as well. And, uh, you know, little tips and things here and there that like nuggets of information people can pick up to, to apply to their own works. And I think that that was sort of what we wanted to do. And, and uh, the response we got has been overwhelmingly positive. People really love the course. I think it's one of the top courses on their website for production. And, and I think people just really like the fact that it's really chill. It's not trying to be pretentious and say, we're teaching you industry secrets that you can't learn anywhere else. Um, you know, there's really no secrets here. It's just hard work and practice and, and you know, having the patience to, to know that you know, what, what you're working on now compared to, say, the finished product in a couple of days is going to be so much better. And it's having that, having that uh, focus and patience to be able to see it through and work out all the problems and kinks and wrinkles. So, um, and the kinks and wrinkles and problems are what people usually get frustrated on. So our, our approach was to do it in a really gentle, um, fun format with a little bit of humor here and there. Um, I don't know how well my humor came across. It probably came across <laughs> horrible and dry, but, you know, it's like, we wanted it to be cool and engaging for people because there's a lot of stuff out there um, on YouTube and on other sites um, that uh, that is really really good quality content, but it falls 
it falls short in terms of like the engage factor, you know, how, how engaging it is for people. Absolutely. So yeah. We, yeah. We, re- we really tried to tailor the content to be uh, concentrated doses of cool information that people could learn. And if they didn't want to watch the whole course one, one go, they didn't have to, they could watch one video and still pick up something interesting. Um, and that was basically it. And uh, we we sent we centered it around uh, a track I produced for the course, and that was basically that. And so far, the response has been great. Um, we're currently working on the follow up, actually, and we're 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 tra- we're taking questions in regards to the first course. What were what were things that people maybe wanted me to focus more on, and you know, are there things in the in the first video that perhaps were were not as clearly explained that we could maybe go over more? So you know, and that's the thing; it's an iterative process. You don't really know how well you're going to do on the first go, um, and so you know, that's part of learning. I mean, we're learning just as much as the people are learning from the course. So, uh, you know, this next course is great because doing the first course, um, I did it on both Mac and PC because I really didn't know what the hell I was doing. I had to edit it on the Mac and I recorded everything on PC, which was fun. And, you know, I learned a lot about that. And then the format of the the videos was different to uh, the course that I recorded with lynda.com and and the way we were doing it because it's just a different way of of recording and, and creating the content. So I learn as much about it um, as the students do. And I think that's great. And it keeps me humble and it keeps me um, having fun. And I hope that people have fun uh, watching the videos that we put together. So yeah, it's, it's really, it's a really great thing. And I, I think it's awesome that these days there's all kinds of resources for people to, to learn to produce music and make music because I don't know about you, but when we were first starting out, I mean, there was so little in the way of content for learning. It was like, it was the deep, dark corners of the internet where you'd go, where like mastering engineers would like converse about like saturation and limiting and, and, you know, or like KVR or the gear sluts forums and things like that, where, you know, people really didn't want to talk a lot about that because it was like trade secrets. And now I think because so many people have access to plugins and things like that, you know, I, I feel that in a way it's, we're duty bound to pay it forward and provide um, as much help to people coming up because in a way it, it means that the, the next wave of music that comes out is really, really well made and has a really good level of production quality. And I think we're both sort of like in that school of thought where, you know, it's, it's important to have good production value and things because it gives tracks more longevity and it, it keeps the overall quality higher. I, so. I would also say that, uh, in this day and age where all this information is so readily available and so many of the the biggest discoveries have been made by this like network of like bedroom producers around the world who are like discovering ways to like break synthesizers you know it's stuff like you know skrillex like when he first got started out like nobody nobody would have suspected that you could get such like insanely rude sounds out of like native instrument uh, instruments fm8 and, yeah. um, and stuff like that but um so I, I do keep an eye on like reddit and like the edm production forum and stuff like that and i've got to say the amount of misinformation that, that goes around like these these circles is insane like like i can't believe how much how much wrong information is is getting put out there so i think to have somebody like yourself who you know who does have such an attention to detail with the mechanics of it all and and how it's all and and how it's all you know constructed and how it all works um i think that's a really good thing so i definitely recommend that to people we'll put we'll definitely put um a link to the to the course itself in the show notes as well um but yeah so um I, th- I think that's I think that's about all I had to ask you. So I just I just want to say like thanks thanks a bunch for coming on this show and 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 being a part of this because it's it's still very new and very exciting for me and I really like to um, like I'm liking this live video uh, component of it as well. So what I might do in future is actually like see if there's a way to have 
two people in the video at the same time. Like maybe there's a way for like people on the other end to be involved. Um, I'll look into that as well. But yeah, basically, you know, I think this is just going to be such a good way to, you know, to, to sort of, yeah, once again, just, just, just bring all of this kind of fan base in this community together a little bit, because I really feel like just the underground electronic community is actually sort of, it's, it's starting to become as cool as it's, as it's ever been. And it's been sort of just like swept to the wayside a little bit over the last sort of few years. And now it's kind of coming back in this really cool way. So, um, yeah, I really want to thank you for coming on the show and being a part of that. And, um, yeah, we'll, uh, I will, uh, everything that we've spoken about today, all of the sort of, um, the things that you've been working on, I'll, 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 I'll put a link to the, to the Quake trailer in the show notes for sure. And also where people can go and check out your music. Uh, is last, just one last thing is, uh, where can people sort of go and check you out? What's the, what's the best place to find you on the internet and, and to see what, what you're doing at the moment? Uh, probably Facebook because that's where I'm usually uh, posting stuff. I don't, I probably should be a lot more active on Twitter. My agent gets after me all the time for that. Um, but Facebook is probably the best way. I have pages for uh, Soundprank um, and the Cartesian Mastering page. Uh, feel free to hit that up. I'm trying to post cool little bits of information every week. And uh, as always, you know, if you guys are interested, hit us up. Um, and then also my composer stuff is under Colin E. Fisher, which you can also search on uh, Facebook. Um, and I often will link stuff uh, to my sound prank page for that as well. So, um, and also on SoundCloud, I post, try and post regularly. Um, and I'm doing, uh, with composing, I do demos for companies like ATO of new instruments and stuff like that. So that's people, you know, they can see what I'm working on lately. It's sort of like a condensed version of maybe what I've done the last couple months in a demo format for an instrument for uh, a company like ATO or something like that. So yeah, Facebook is the best way and SoundCloud. Cool. And uh, yeah, like, well, once again, we'll, we'll have all these links in the show notes and stuff. So uh, yeah, once again, thank you very much, uh, Colin, for, for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And um, I hope all of you people on Facebook enjoyed this. And uh, yeah, like I said, if, if it was unintelligible or, or was, was, you know, if they, I know, I know the, the connection dropped out a few times. There's unfortunately not much we can do about that. Um, but yeah, so thanks to you guys for tuning in as well. Uh, this will be out as an audio podcast in the next few days. Uh, so keep an eye out for that on SoundCloud. So yeah, th- th- thanks again for your time, Colin. No problem. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. See you guys later. Cheers. So that wraps it up for today's talk. If you want to check out SoundClouds, SoundClouds, SoundPranks Sound on SoundCloud, head over to soundcloud.com forward slash soundprank. Let me just actually double check that is the address. Yes, it is. Before we go today, I would like to also play you a little sneak preview of the next record we have lined up for Positronic Digital. It's from fellow producer Derek Sylvester, aka Deza. It's called March of the Bird. It's this cool triple time progressive house cut that we, you know, we've, we've, be, we've had our eye on Derek for a while and we've, we've been keen to put out something of his and when he sent this through it was pretty much a no-brainer. The release is coming out everywhere on July 15th and this is the original mix that you're hearing right now.
On the flip side, we thought it would be really cool to have a remix uh, that sort of does away with the 6-8 time signature and does a more four to the floor type thing because that sort of just fits in a lot better with with what people are playing in clubs and stuff like that. So uh, I decided to do like a more kind of JTEC peak time set oriented uh, remix for the flip side. And uh, so basically it was, it was a matter of uh, taking the kind of triple time melodies and kind of truncating them down so that they fit into like a, a more sort of static 4-4 beat and uh, I think it turned out really well and I'm really happy with the, the sound that I'm getting out of this new studio here in Berlin so uh, both mixes of this track were, were mastered here in the Berlin studio and uh, my remix was obviously mixed here as well. If you're an electronic producer looking to get a better sound out of your tracks, be sure to check out my mix and master service over at mix.jtechmusic.com. It's basically uh, what I do for fun in between all of, all of the crazy tearing my hair out that I do on my own projects. So uh, yeah, if, if you're sort of coming up in the music world and looking to get a sort of finalized, polished uh, sound for your tracks, be sure to hit me up. Lastly, I'm playing at Gigalum in London on the 17th of July, that's in just over two weeks, and I will be debuting a whole bunch of new music there for sure, would love to see some of you guys there. Don't forget, you can of course subscribe to this show anytime as a podcast over at jtechmusic.com forward slash studio talk, or just head over to soundcloud.com forward slash jtechmusic. I'll leave you with an epic breakdown today, and until next time, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>